The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Sometimes a party can change the way that we see people. Sometimes it's in the midst of relationships, at a party, hanging out with, with friends, side to side and circled up together. That in the midst of those relationships that Jesus begins to change the way that we see somebody. Because sometimes it's at a party where Jesus begins to change the way we see, see people. We begin to see others the way that Jesus sees them. In the midst of those relationships, we begin to see a story, a conversation, hurts, struggles. See, whenever you throw a party, whenever you attend a party, those parties always demonstrate something to you about the party host. It demonstrates something to you about what matters to the person throwing the party. It demonstrates something about what matters to the people showing up at the party. It demonstrates what matters and who matters and maybe even what doesn't matter at that party. And so if you throw a a birthday party for your kids, what you are doing in that moment is you're demonstrating something about the way that you feel about your kids. You're demonstrating that your, your gratitude and your excitement for your kids. When you attend a kid's birthday party and you bring gifts to that birthday party, you're demonstrating something to that child about their birthday, about what you think about them, about the fact that they matter to you. When you throw a graduation party for your kids, as they, as they wrap up high school, what, what you do in that moment is you are demonstrating something uh, about your relationship, about what matters to you and what's significant about that moment. You demonstrate to that, that, to that kid that you're proud of them, that, that you're celebrating their, their transition into adulthood, their future. When, when you throw an engagement party or you, you celebrate a wedding, what happens at that, at that celebration is you demonstrate something. You demonstrate that, that this couple matters, that you want to encourage them, that you want to celebrate them in their future as husband and wife. When a couple has an anniversary and you celebrate with them, what, what happens in that moment is you demonstrate that that relationship matters, that their hard work and their commitment is important. See, whatever the party is, that party always demonstrates something about what matters most. Last week, we began this new series called It Takes a Party. And the whole idea with this series is that Jesus loved to party. Jesus, in fact, was even criticized for being at parties and the kind of people that he hung out with. And so Jesus often is in the midst of parties or even talking about parties. And those parties always demonstrate something about what's important to Jesus. And what matters in our relationship with God. And so last week we began this series by looking at a party that Jesus attends. And at this party he actually does his first miracle. He turns water into wine. And in doing so what Jesus actually demonstrates for us is Jesus demonstrates that he cares about people who party. Jesus demonstrates that, that he cares about the fact that this couple has run out of wine at the party. And so he demonstrates that he cares about their joy. He demonstrates that he cares about the celebration. He demonstrates that shame is not going to be the thing that defines the groom at this party. And so Jesus puts dignity aside. He risks his reputation at the party for the sake of the people at the party. And throughout our lives as Christians, what we have the opportunity to do is to do what Jesus did, to show up at parties. And because Christ is in us, when we show up at the parties, Jesus also shows up. And so as Christians, we have the opportunity to bring Jesus into every relationship. And often, it's in the midst of those parties 
that Jesus begins to change the way you see somebody and he also changes the way somebody else sees Jesus. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 15. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1624. Today we're going to look at a party, not that Jesus attends, but that he actually talks about. Jesus tells a story, this is a parable, and so a parable is simply an illustration that Jesus is using, a story to illustrate the life with God and a relationship with God. He's using this to paint a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. And so he tells a story about a party, a party that a dad throws because of an event that happens that related to his sons. And so Jesus will use this to demonstrate, like all parties do, to demonstrate what matters to God. And so I'm going to begin in verse 11, and then we'll spend some time talking about this party. It begins, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went off and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his sons, threw his arm around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a party. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave even a young goat so I could party with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to party because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And is found. Now, when we read this story, when we, when we look in our Bibles, one of the things that happens in our translations of the Bibles is you'll often see these titles. Um, now, those titles were not actually in the original text, but what you'll find is these titles help us divide up the text. Nowhere there are natural breaks and rhythms in the different stories throughout the scripture. And so, so if you're reading in the Bibles in front of you, what you would probably find as the heading is this is the parable of the lost son. Other, other ways that this has been referred to throughout history and in other translations, it will even refer to this as the parable of the prodigal son. 
Now, the reason that title actually got used, the prodigal son, the reason this son was described this way is because of what that word prodigal means. That word prodigal comes from what our text translate as wild living, or other translations would call it reckless living. See, a prodigal is someone who is reckless. And so when Jesus tells the story, inevitably what we find in the description of the events is that one of these sons appears to be very reckless. And so hence the name we, we call this, the prodigal son, the reckless son. And so in the story, Jesus will show and highlight through the comments, the conversations, the choices, a recklessness that separates from God. Now what I would suggest is when we look at this though, it's not just about the recklessness of one son, but it's actually two prodigals. The reckless younger brother, but also a reckless older brother. Now, now the recklessness that we see in both of them is, is not, not, not the same kind of recklessness. In fact, the younger brother is what we would see as the more traditional, obvious kind of recklessness. It's, it's the recklessness of immorality and, and reckless behavior, rebellion against the father. And so the, for the first son, his recklessness all starts actually even when he's still at home. We see this recklessness of his selfishness. He's ungrateful. He's greedy for more. And so he approaches his dad and says, Dad, I, I want my share of the inheritance now. Now, in the first century, this is the equivalent of him going to his dad and saying, Dad, I wish you died. Dad, you're better off to me dead than you are alive. And so he approaches his dad and is trying to make a deal, which is not any deal at all. He's simply telling his dad he wishes he would die because he's so selfish, he's so greedy, that his dad is worth nothing more to him than the money that he's going to get. And so he asks his dad recklessly, can I have my share of the inheritance now? And the dad, for some reason, gives it to him. Now, depending on the kind of culture you grow up in, as you continue to read the story, you might observe different things about the recklessness of this younger brother. See, what the text tells us happens next is that he squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, now if you grow up, like like many of us do, in a culture of, of excess and that we have an abundance of stuff, what we typically notice is, is that, that, that there's wild living. Right? We notice the behavior, the immorality, the choices that this younger son makes. Now, many people, though, don't grow up in the kind of culture we do. And that, so they notice something else in the text that is equally true, but just simply highlights different aspects of the reckless behavior of this son. See, many people actually notice that he squandered his wealth in wild living. See, many of you, even as we read that text just now, or maybe in any of your times reading that text, some of you may have never even noticed that the text tells us there's a famine in the land. See, many other cultures, actually, when they read this story, the thing that jumps out to them immediately is there's a famine in the land, and this son is reckless in his money when nobody has anything to eat. And that reckless selfishness and behavior leads him to a desperate place eating with the pigs. See, the younger brother is reckless in his selfishness and his behavior. He is wasteful. He makes immoral choices. He does what he should never do. Because the only one he looks out for is himself. And so eventually it leaves him with nothing left. With nowhere to turn. Now for the older brother, it's not quite an obvious kind of recklessness. Right? For the younger brother, we, we see it. It's out in the open. Nobody has any questions for, the, for his father, for the community. When they see the son, they know exactly how he screwed up. 
But for the older brother in the story, it's a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit harder to see. Now, if you're actually a guest with us, it might actually be easier for you to see this because this is also kind of the struggle with, with us as Christians. The more, we, we, are, the more we, we try to put our faith into practice, what can happen over time is we can begin to think about other people who aren't like us and look down on them. We can see other people who don't struggle in the same way that we do, and we can look down on them with judgment because their sin doesn't look like our sin. And so if you're a guest, if you're not a Christian, you might say, all right, well, that's obvious. That is clear that there's a problem there because he's just doing what the church always does, looks down on the people who are outside. See, what the older brother does, his recklessness is a little bit different. He was reckless in his self-righteousness. See, for the younger brother, it's his badness that causes the problem. But for the older brother, it's actually his goodness that causes the problem. No, 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 the older brother is bad, but, but he, he, just, he doesn't realize it. He's too focused on his own good behavior. He's too focused on his own faithfulness that he thinks that he deserves it. He even, tell, he even tells his dad, I followed every order. I've done what you said over and over and over again, yet you didn't ever throw me a party. And so the older brother looks at the situation and he gets angry at the grace that his dad has for his younger brother. Now that's what always happens. But that, that's what always happens when we struggle with self-righteousness. God's grace always angers the self-righteous. Because it's not fair. It's, it's not just. It's not right. And so the older brother looks at the situation and, and just says, well... Well, at least I'm not like that. He even stands outside of the party saying, I, I don't want anything to do. I, I don't want to celebrate that kind of behavior. And so he's frustrated. Even, even in the accusation he makes, do we actually know what the, what the younger brother squandered his wealth on? Or is the older brother jumping to conclusions about what he th- thinks his brother did with that money? See, he recklessly is self-righteous in his judgment. Sometimes reckless behavior separates us from God. And sometimes reckless self-righteousness separates us from God. And the challenge with these is is that when you are reckless in your behavior, eventually it all runs out. Eventually you come to the end of the rope. Eventually you hit bottom and you have nowhere else to turn. But when you're reckless in your self-righteousness, it's not always, it doesn't hit you. You often find yourself, and somebody can even be talking right to you, and you never even catch it. Because, oh, no, everything's good. You're good. And so often what it takes with with the self-righteous is it takes a little bit more pleading, a little bit more pushing and saying, all right, maybe there are some places where we have thought what we shouldn't. Maybe there are some places where we have ignored the image of God in another person. See, sometimes it's not always obvious. And so what, that, what happens then in this situation is for both brothers, this party demonstrates something significant about what matters to the father. The party makes something known to the sons at the party, and the party makes something known to the people who Jesus tells the story to, and the party helps demonstrate the reckless love of God. Because sometimes it takes a party to confirm that we can always be forgiven. 
Sometimes it takes a party to confirm that no matter how far we've run from God, no matter how much we've rebelled against God, no matter how desperate we are, that we can always be forgiven. And sometimes it takes a party to, so that we can be reminded that even when we've looked at people who are different than us, who struggle with different sins than us, with, with judgment, to know that even our own sins of self-righteousness can be forgiven by God. To know that God wants us at the party. And so these two sons are reckless. They rebel. They separate. Yet the father goes after both of them. Now what's interesting about this story, if we're really just thinking about this, this, the title of the story... Or the, the, and the, the reckless sons, perhaps we could title it differently. And it's just a title. It's not actually what the text describes the story. And so what if we titled the story differently? That it wasn't actually about the prodigal sons. But what if this story is actually about a prodigal father? What if this story is actually about the recklessness of the father in relationship with his two sons? Last week, one of the ideas that we introduced that, that, that we can often see in the parties that Jesus attends, the, par- the relationships that Jesus has, is often dignity takes a back seat. And so when Jesus tells this story, he actually demonstrates the same thing about this father and his relationship with his two sons. With, with this father, he puts dignity aside. He risks his reputation. He look, risks his standing in the community. He risks embarrassment for the sake of his son. Dignity takes a back seat. And so what we find is this father recklessly does some things that make no sense in the eyes of a first century world. That make no sense in the eyes of the community that he would live in. See, right from the beginning, it says the father divided his property between them. Or there's an emotional cost, a financial cost that really just doesn't make sense. He he simply gives the younger son what he asks for. And that's just the beginning because the younger son leaves and then he comes back. The coming back part of the equation is is what people aren't prepared for. Because when this younger son leaves, he's not supposed to ever be welcomed back into his home or his community. And the son knows that. That's why he's preparing the speech where he says, I'll come back as a servant. I'll work for you. Because there's no way he could be family again. In fact, the community would want nothing to do with him. There's a famine in the land, and the worst thing that he could do to disgrace his community is take his money and spend it, giving it to the Gentiles. And so so where did he spend his money when he's in wild living? It's not going back into his own community. It's not going back into his own family. It's not going to any of that. And so he would be cut off from the community, from his family. And so when he comes back, he's not supposed to be welcomed back. He's not supposed to be accepted into the community, into his family. But the text tells us that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Which raises the question, how long did the father wait for his son to come home? Because if the father saw him in a distance, he, it means the father had to be looking in a distance before his son actually started walking down the road. Like, how many days did the father go outside day after day after day just waiting? Maybe today will be the day my son returns. Like, and did the father have, like, the emotional frustration knowing that his son didn't show up? Like, it, like all right, son goes down, time to go in, son didn't return home today. 
recklessly wasting his time and his energy, recklessly believing that maybe his son would come back. Yet day after day after day, the text tells us that, the, that when the son was a long way off, which means the father was waiting before his son got there. And, that, and that's not all, because once the son shows up, it tells us he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. All right, in the first century world, this does not happen. Kids run. Maybe women run, but fathers do not run. And so he puts dignity aside, and he hikes up his robe, burying his legs, and starts booking it down the road, tripping over his sandals, making a spectacle of himself. And it was intentional. Because while everybody looks on and says, what is he doing? Why is he so foolish? Why is he so reckless? What the father understands is that in his own recklessness, it takes the attention off of the son and puts it onto the father. Suddenly, people would not be focused on the reckless behavior of the son, and they'd be focused on the reckless behavior of the father. Suddenly, people wouldn't be looking at the shame because of the fact that the son didn't bring a gift of reconciliation, didn't try to earn back his relationship or standing. Suddenly, they would pay attention to this old man running down a street with bare legs and saying, what? What is gotten into him? See, I don't know what has taken you far away from God. I don't know what selfish decisions, what rebellion has left you far off. But know that your father waits for you to come home. And the moment he sees you, The moment he sees you in a distance, he puts dignity aside and rushes out to embrace you. He makes a fool of himself so that the shame wouldn't be on you, it would be on him. So that the people wouldn't notice your guilt, they would notice his love. And isn't this what we see in the sacrifice of Jesus? Jesus is lifted up, they make a a spectacle of him. And suddenly, it's not about our guilt and shame, but it's about the reckless love of the Father. So the Father races out, and before the Son can even get this this sort of a speech out, he embraces him and loves him. So I don't know if you've ever had that moment where, like, you knew you screwed up, and so you're trying to confess it to God. And so you're trying to come up with the words that will, like, demonstrate how sorry you are. Or maybe even, like, you don't feel as bad as you feel like you're supposed to feel. And so maybe if you can use the right words, like, it will make you feel worse so you can really prove to God that you're really sorry. All right, when this happens, right, the son's prepared his speech. He's even got the part about being a servant, showing his willingness to change his life, to to be, be willing to just do whatever it takes. And the father cuts him off before he finishes the speech. See, maybe some of you need to know, you might not be able to get the perfect words out to prove to God you're sorry, but but God's going to interrupt you and prove to you that he will forgive you no matter what. That is the reckless love that we see when the father chases after his son. And so the son returns home. And the party begins. Now, interestingly, the reckless behavior of the father isn't just about that younger son, though. Because once the party gets started, 
the father doesn't stop. The father shows his love to his younger son. He gets the party started. And so, so the servants are there. The family's there. Maybe, the whole, maybe even the community is there at this point. And suddenly the party's going. The robe's on him. The ring's on him. The fattened calf has been, been slaughtered. And so they've got the party going. The music turns up. And what's the older son decide to do? The older son just leaves. He says, I'll have no part of it. And you know what, what the father should do in the first century world? He should stay in the party. Because leaving the party is a disgrace to the family. Leaving the party is shaming the family, saying, I'm better than you. I'm better than this party. I I don't believe in the party. Yet the older son leaves the party, and the father recklessly leaves the party he threw. He leaves the party, and then goes and pleads with that older brother, saying, come in to the party. The father risks humiliation by leaving his own party because he thinks it's worth it to get that older son back. To beg with him to come back to the celebration. Tells him, everything I have is yours. See, for some of us, we've found ourselves outside of the party. And maybe we didn't even realize we were outside of the party, but we found ourselves there because it's, it's, it's often easier to look at somebody else's sin instead of our own. It's easier to compare our sins to other people's sin. And so we find ourselves missing out on the joy and the celebration. And so Jesus is at the party. Jesus is the sacrifice that has made the party possible. And the Father leaves that party to come out to you and beg you, please come into the party. You don't know what you're missing. Whether we are wandering away as lawbreakers or self-righteous law keepers, the love of God chases us down. Whether it's the father leaving his home to chase us down, or it's the father leaving the 99 at the party to go after the one older brother who is outside the party, God does what we don't deserve. And sometimes it takes a party to confirm that. Sometimes it takes a party to confirm that we can always be forgiven. Sometimes it takes a party to confirm that neither the goodness nor the badness can keep us out of the party. To confirm for us, even when we've sinned, even when we've rebelled, even when we've found ourselves desperate and nowhere with nowhere to go, Jesus confirms for us that the party is for you. That the Father still loves you. He embraces you and he welcomes you home. And some of you need a party because you're having trouble realizing that. Some of you need the, the relationships that confirm for you that your sins can be forgiven. Some of you are having trouble realizing that when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he actually means it. Like it's not this idea that is possible, but he actually means that he's, he's forgiven your sins. Some of you are having trouble believing that when the death and resurrection happened, that it actually is for you. Some of you need a party because you're trying to prepare this perfect speech for God. And you need to, need to realize that God's not waiting for you to finish the speech. And some of you need a party because you don't want to be at the party. 
Some of you need a party to remind you that God's grace is even bigger than you thought. Some of you need a party to remind you to come back into the party. That's reckless. But that's the love of God. The reckless grace of God is the hope of the world. It's costly. It's humiliating. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. We don't deserve it. But sometimes it takes a party to demonstrate that. To demonstrate that the death and resurrection of Jesus is what makes the party happen. To demonstrate that we can always be forgiven. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 describes the same thing when he says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. And so when we, like the younger brother, were a far way off, while we were a, far, while we were a long way off, that's when God went after us. Not once we got it all together, not once we prepared the speech, not once we worked off our debts, not once we brought something to reconcile. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For those of us who are outside of the party, like the older brother, while we were still outside of the party, that's when Christ came for us. While we were still outside of the party, the Father pleads with us and begs us to come back in to celebrate because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus demonstrates his love to remind us that we are always forgiven. While we were still sinners... The fattened calf gets sacrificed. The music gets turned up and the party begins. Because sometimes it takes a party to confirm that we can always be forgiven. And so for us, as God's people who are invited to the party, whether we are invited after having been a long way off and we've returned home or whether, we, whether God was pleading with us to come back in the party, the question I want you to think about is in your own relationships, what party do you need to be at to confirm that people can be forgiven? What people has God placed in your life who need to know that God forgives their sins? What people in your life need to know that God is a little bit reckless with his grace and so he'll forgive even the people who don't deserve it. Because when you show up at the party, Jesus shows up at the party. And in the midst of those relationships, what Jesus does is he demonstrates that everyone can be forgiven. And for some of you, Maybe some of you are outside of the party. Maybe you thought you were somebody at the party and suddenly you realize that you actually were the one, that you were the one who was lost, that you were the one on the outside because of self-righteousness, because you thought you had it all together, you thought you were good enough, and suddenly you realize that even you need to come back home. What party are you on the outside of that you need to join in? to remind you that God's grace is even bigger than you thought. To remind you of the joy and the peace and the life that happens at the party.
Because when Jesus shows up at the party, no one is left the same. Because it's at the party that Jesus confirms that your sins are forgiven. And it might be a little bit reckless, but it's our hope that the death and resurrection of Jesus covers over every sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Yet it's that love that brings us here. It's that love that invites us into the family. We thank you that while we are still sinners, that still you gave yourself to us. Whether we are feel like we are a far way off in the distance, just getting ourselves out of the mud and the mess, desperate and looking for somewhere to go, remind us in that moment that you're running down the street, putting your dignity aside to remind us that we are welcome back home. For those of us who find ourselves on the outside of the party, looking in with judgment, embarrassment, bring us back to the party. Bring us back home where we can experience the love and the joy that only you can give. Jesus, change us. Change the way we see ourselves at the party and change the way we see other people. Strengthen our faith to put our hope in your reckless and never-ending love for us.